Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good afternoon. So Kat Partio is a medically retired Air Force major who used to work as a satellite operator and who is stationed here at Los Angeles Air Force Base in El Segundo. And she's my guest today. She has served in the Air Force for 18 years and is currently a wounded warrior who has been in an auto accident about two years ago and is currently a quadriplegic and she's medically retired and staying at home. So thank you, Kat, for agreeing to be interviewed today. I had a couple of questions for you about what happened to you, about the accident and your career. And of course, we'll talk about grit and resiliency as we do. So I'll just start out by asking you, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where okay. you grew up, and, and uh, how you ended up in the Air Force. Okay. First off, thank you for this opportunity. We hope to be able to influence and motivate some other people out of some dark days, help them get through some um, challenging times in their lives. So thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Um, so I was born and raised in Belize in Central America. After high school, at the age of 17, is when I came to the United States to join the Air Force specifically. Being born to an American father made me an American, so that's how I was able to just come to the United States and, and join the Air Force. I enlisted initially and was assigned as a logistics technician at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. And then after that, my main goal joining the Air Force was to get my education because I didn't have that opportunity in Belize. So my goal was to start taking classes as soon as possible. And through that process, I found out about ROTC. And I applied, fortunately got accepted, did a three-year scholarship, ROTC scholarship, and then um, got my commission and came back in the Air Force as a satellite operator. Back in those days, it was space and missiles, but now they've separated the space and missiles career field. Why satellite operator? How did that? I didn't pick it. It was one of those needs of the Air Force. Oh, I see. Jobs. <laughs> and I felt very fortunate to have gotten the space side of space and missiles versus the missile side. Um, so then I was sent to Vandenberg for training technical school for about six months to learn how to be a satellite vehicle operator. and went to Colorado to do my first satellite operations tour. I operate on the Defense Satellite Communication System. It's a communication satellite that the Air Force operates, provides secure WorldCom to like POTUS and allied forces. Then I went to Vandenberg to teach satellite operations. I didn't like teaching much, so I focused more on the course, the schoolwork, the course material. 
and got promoted to flight commander rather quickly and did most of my tour there as a flight commander, which opened the doors for a green door assignment here at LA, and that's how I got here. So joining the Air Force was really not my choice. My dad was like, there's not much opportunity for you here in Belize after high school. Mm -hmm. I'm going to send you to the U.S. You're going to join the Air Force. They're going to feed you, put clothes on your back, educate you. And was that okay? Yeah. And he was like, that's all you need. And I mean, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what I was getting into. Did you come by yourself? Yeah, I had no choice. You know, he just literally, he gave me the plane (laughs) ticket. And in three days, I was on the plane to Houston to join the military. And we that have was, a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> I immigrated here when I yeah. was 19 by myself. Really? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was like I got in the car and for me it was like a little bit of culture shock seeing all the cars on the freeways. I couldn't <laughs> believe there were so many lanes just for cars on the freeways. And there was, I was actually with my stepsister at the time and she, um, she was eating a burger from Burger King, driving. I was like, how do you drive and eat? <laughs> you know, to me it was all new. So you had some family in in the U.S. then? Um, Well, my sister came with me, like, on the plane with me Mm -hmm. so she could drop me off Mm -hmm. in Houston to somebody else that would take care of me Mm -hmm. through the Air Force application process. But, yeah, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I was just doing what I was told. And obviously in the Air Force, you just have to do what you're told. (laughs) And um, and then after, I think after I got my commission, then that's when I realized... Okay, this is good. This is going to be okay. How many years have you been commissioned? I was 12 years commissioned. Yeah. And so this was your last assignment in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. Mm-hmm. Los Segundo. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, tell me what happened in uh, 2015. Um, I, I mentioned you've been in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was December 5th. So right around Christmas time frame where the Christmas parties start on the weekends. And my stepsister was having her Christmas party down in Laguna Niguel. And my husband and I were invited. And there was another friend from Belize that lives in Lakewood on our way to Laguna Niguel that we needed to pick up. She was also invited by my stepsister. And my stepsister asked us to pick her up. So we did. And as we were getting back on the freeway, the 405 freeway, going south on Lakewood after picking this, this friend up, I guess it was dark. To be honest, I was looking down on my phone, looking for Christmas music to play. Mm. My husband was driving, and the passenger, our friend, was in the back seat. I just remember hearing like a thump on the bottom of the vehicle. I don't know if we went over like, like part of the freeway. It was almost like a median. We went over something. I'm really not sure what it was, to be honest mm. with you. It could have been a wheel, a piece piece of debris, something. And it seemed like it got stuck in the tire because I remember seeing my husband trying to turn the the steering wheel to the left, trying to gain control of the vehicle, but he couldn't. He couldn't. It would not turn. The wheel would not turn. And we just kept sliding backwards or off the freeway. Um, I just closed my eyes. I didn't want to see what was about to happen, but I trusted that everything would be okay. So at at the end of um, turning and turning, the vehicle rolling over, it came to an abrupt halt as we hit like a light post. In that abrupt halt, my head hit the back of the seat, giving me whiplash. So that's what broke my neck. That hard impact to the the seat Mm -hmm. is what broke my neck. So basically, 
my vertebrae in the back of my neck punctured my spinal cord and it instantly paralyzed me. Wow. It like bruised up my spinal cord. So the vehicle landed upside down. I had my seatbelt on, so I was hanging like really, literally like a monkey, but my hands hanging down. I didn't realize I was paralyzed at the time. I, didn't, I couldn't feel anything. My husband had broken his skull because his head hit the driver's side window. Mm. Um, and that window had shattered. And he was able to unlatch the seatbelt, crawl out of the car, and I asked him to go look for help on the freeway. Somehow we could still see the freeway. And I told him, go get help, go yell down help. And so he did. And I What happened to the passenger? She was in the back screaming. She couldn't unlatch her seatbelt. And I asked her to look for a phone too, to ask for help. But it was dark. Nobody could find a phone. We couldn't find any phone. And I've read that you, your husband said that you saved their lives because you were you stayed completely calm and you, I know. Just, you kept saying, it's so go crazy. get help, mm-hmm. go get help. And he said, your training kicked in. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Military training definitely kicked in. It's, yeah. um, you know, uh, self-aid buddy care. Yeah. Uh, that was um, at the forefront of my mind. You know, it's you hate to practice it when you're doing self-aid buddy care. You hate to practice mm-hmm. this. Like, hey, go get help, go call 911. Mm-hmm. You know, take mm-hmm. charge of the scene. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I had to do. Because where my husband I hit his head, he was really a little bit confused. He didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And they're civilians. They're, they're not trained on what to do in some in an yeah. instance like that. So, yeah, I told him, go get help, because I knew that's what we needed. And as, I try, as he was out on the freeway trying to yell down for help, I was trying to unlatch myself from the seatbelt. But I couldn't move my hand. So I was like, oh, no, I broke my arm. And then I started yelling, I broke my arm. I can't unlatch myself from the seatbelt. You know, like, go get help. You know, find, find, come. I told the passenger, find your phone or see if you can get out. Go ask for help. She couldn't get out. The vehicle had locked the doors mm-hmm. through the accident. My husband came back and then said that nobody would stop for help. Out of nowhere, this man comes from under the freeway, maybe like a homeless man, mm-hmm. or he lived nearby. He heard the wreckage, came up. Hey, do you guys need help? Mm-hmm. We're like, yes, we're trying to get, we need an ambulance. We're trying to call it down for help, but nobody's stopping. Please call an ambulance. So the cars would just go by? Yeah. Wow. They, yeah. I don't know if they could see my husband. I'm not sure exactly where we were, to be honest, on the freeway. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we were like, you know, far, like at a distance mm-hmm. from the freeway. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, thanks to this man that just came up and heard the wreckage, mm-hmm. called 911, and I just kept praying, mm-hmm. like, just spare my life, God, please. Mm-hmm. You know, I trust that you're going to keep me alive and mm-hmm. and just help me. I feel like I was dying because not knowing I had an open fracture on my left tibia. Rotating in the car, um, my tibia, my leg kept hitting the dashboard and it broke my foot. And so I was bleeding. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it. So after a while, do you do you remember? So you you acted calmly, at least that's how the, mm-hmm. your your husband recalled it. Do you remember feeling calmly on the inside? Or do you remember? No, kind of I was acting? scared. Okay, yeah. I was scared, but I knew what we needed to do. I was fully conscious. Yeah, but I was scared. Yeah, I was scared, but in a way, I still f- trusted that I was going to be okay. I felt like I would be okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't have the word paralyzed in my mind at all. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that that was even possible. 
So after a while, in the distance, I could hear the sirens coming, and and I, I remember asking and begging, um, like, hurry up, I'm gonna die, <laughs> just hurry up, take me away. And they were like, no, you're gonna be fine. They had to cut the seatbelt to get me out. They put me in a stretcher, and I just remember them asking me, like, you know, what is your name? Where do you live? What's the date? Where do you work? Mm -hmm. Those basic questions, just to make sure that you're conscious. And mm -hmm. I answer them and. After that, I don't remember anything for a week. It was, I was For a week, I was, like, sedated so much that I don't... I lost a week. I, I don't know what happened during that time frame, but all three of us were taken to different hospitals. My husband was treated for his head injury. He got a halo screwed to his head while he was conscious. They didn't even give him, like, mm -hmm. anesthesia. If you like think of like them drilling a screw mm. into your head, mm. screwing this like metal frame onto your head mm. to stabilize your vertebrae so it doesn't break. That's what he had done to him. I went into like an eight or 12 hour surgery. I don't remember how long it was. They had to call in the on-call surgeon, neurosurgeon, to come and do surgery on my vertebrae because it had broken. So they put four screws from my C3 through my C6 to join those um, vertebrae to put screws in my neck. But there was nothing that could be done for the spinal cord. It was already bruised. And once those cells in your spinal cord are bruised, they're like atrophied and they just don't function. They just don't regenerate. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes the paralysis. Mm -hmm. They had to do a, <clears throat> a tracheotomy. They put a trach in my, here in my neck, in the lower part of my neck, so that I can breathe. Due to the paralysis, my muscles uh, around my chest, I don't have the strength to like breathe normally, to inhale and exhale. My diaphragm is also not normal like, like we normally mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. So it's harder for me to breathe, so I need a tracheotomy to help me breathe with a breathing machine. And you used to wear it all the time, right? And you don't wear it anymore. Well, I wore it for like three months, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for three months. I was on the breathing machine only for a month, five weeks. Mm -hmm. So that was good. I think because of the training, all the triathlon training, the marathon training, I think it helped get me off the breathing machine. Because mm -hmm. if not, I'd probably be on the breathing machine like most quadriplegics that are injured at, at such a high level like I am. Mm -hmm. Eventually with time, they had to do a feeding tube as well. Well, after a few days, they put in a feeding tube through my stomach. They put a hole there in my stomach and put a tube in there for me to have only liquid foods. And then they did a surgery on my tibia and inserted a long rod with like eight screws to put my tibia together. So I was in the hospital for, in the ICU for like five weeks. Wow. My husband was in the hospital for about a week with his halo and just making sure that he was okay. He wore the halo for two months. For him, it was a little challenging because he's already tall. He's like 6'3", then plus the halo makes him close to like 7 foot. So he kept hitting his head and his head kept bleeding because of the screws. Oh. That would, um, yeah. Uh, and the other passenger, she had like a little scrape or something like that. She was wow. fine. We didn't see much of her after that. Um, and then after the ICU, I was transferred to the VA rehab facility in Long Beach, the spinal cord injury facility there. And I was there for like three months. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where it hit me that I was paralyzed. I was in denial for like two months. What was it like to realize that? Oh God, I just started bawling and crying. It's just disbelief. It's like, how is it possible? You just can't believe it to this day. Two years after the accident, I still can't believe I'm like this. And I still cry. Mm. I still cry and I want to take my life. I don't want to be here like this. Mm. And the worst thing is I can't do anything about it because I don't even have hands to do anything about it. And that's what makes it even worse. <clears throat> Which, it's so like I'm forced to be strong. I'm forced. I have no other choice to find ways to cope and to live my life every day. But other people do it and seeing there's people worse off than me, believe it or not. And I think seeing other people that are in worse conditions than me inspires me. Uh, my husband inspires me because every day he's still, he's one of those happy people, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, he's very encouraging, so he inspires me. I'm curious, you said it took you a while to realize that you were actually quadriplegic. Mm -hmm. oh, do you remember exactly that day when, when you sort of mm. fully recognized that mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to move? Mm -hmm. Yes, it took a couple of months. I remember I was at the VA hospital and seeing other patients in wheelchairs, like older than me, hmm. not moving. And in my same situation, it made me see like, yes, there is a life like this. Like, yes, I am like this, just like they are paralyzed in that wheelchair. And I will be paralyzed until I'm old, older as hmm. those patients are. Hmm. Then to me, it's something like, this is real. Like, hmm. this is no denying it anymore. Because I was at the in the ICU, I told my coworkers that came to visit, I was like, don't worry, it'll be a long rehab. I'll be back at work. I'll be back at work in about six months or so. I was oh, like, you complete, didn't realize that it's no, going to be this No, I didn't way. realize I was mm. paralyzed. Mm. Mm. I was told I was paralyzed, but it just, it just like came in one ear and it went through the other. It just did not sink in. It did not register. It did not register yet. When I was told I would have, they would have to do bladder care and bowel care on me for the rest of my life. I got so mad at that nurse. I was like, who are you to tell me what to do? Mm. Who are you to tell me what my body's going to do? No control of your bodily functions. No. Because again, I'm, I grew up having low self-esteem. I had to learn to be confident and becoming an officer made me more confident because I had been on the enlisted side and I knew enlisted people look up to officers. And as an officer, you need to set the example. You need to be confident. Even if you don't know what you're doing, you need to act like you know what you're mm -hmm. doing so people can follow you and trust you. Mm -hmm. So I had learned to be confident. And so I carried that confidence through the accident, and I was like, no, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't fine. I mean, I'm alive, and I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But as far as going back to my physical activities that I used to do, running marathons, triathlons, weightlifting, I couldn't go us, back to do that. 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I, I know you used to be quite an accomplished athlete, or you are an accomplished athlete. And you used to, to run, do triathlons, and do bodybuilding competitions. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. For me, that was all my coping strategy for uh, dealing with depression, coping with feelings of rejection, of, of not feeling love from my mother or from family. I started running in high school when I was 13. And then when I got in the Air Force, I noticed that there were element leaders and your squadron commanders in ROTC field training. You had like little squadron commanders, etc. Everybody was good at one thing, and I didn't feel like I was good at anything. Somehow I decided that running or physical activity would be my one good thing, one thing that I'd be good at. Mm -hmm. And that's just what I focused on. So I just started running faster, doing sprints, and eventually got into the marathon running until I made that my strength. I had like the highest fitness score in my field training group. I always got hundreds on my fitness tests. Then got into the bodybuilding because I got tired of the runner's look, like the scrawny, skinny look. <laughs> I didn't like that anymore. And I needed a new challenge because I ran my last full marathon. I ran it and there was nobody there for me at the end. It was like an accomplishment to myself. It was lonely. Mm. And I was like, what did I just go through all that torture for? It was like <laughs> nobody to celebrate with, to share the happiness with. Mm -hmm. So then I... Um, I had a friend who was like, you know, you should try bodybuilding. You have a good figure. You're proportional. Mm -hmm. And you do good at it. And that was about when I was stationed at Vandenberg. I don't know if you've been to Vandenberg, but there's not much to do if you're single. So I started working out in the morning before going to work. And after work, I would just go do cardio. Mm -hmm. And I I did the healthy eating, the clean eating, the the diet prep and And saw, did a little recon, went to a couple competitions, saw what it was about. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I could try it. Easier said than done because it's very nerve-wracking getting up there in the stage with the lights flashing at you and you're showing your butt to the people and you're like, oh, my God, you really have to stick to the diet and you really have to stick to the training because if mm -hmm. not, you're making a fool out of yourself if you're out here like that. So it was a challenge, continuous challenge. And every time I got off the stage, I didn't do well. I wanted to do better the next time. So you experienced a few failures. I experienced a lot of failures. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> It's what I read on the internet. I, you know, the, one of the first links that popped about oh, yeah. you was uh, that you won um, bikini, I think yes. it's called, uh, bikini pro, you became a bikini pro athlete yeah, in 2012. Yes. I was the, so the, the main goal that bodybuilders go after in the national physique committee competitions is the international federation of bodybuilding professional card or pro card professional status basically some people get it some people don't and so that's like your goal and so i just kept competing and competing how many times you fail before you won oh my goodness It's about six seven times mm -hmm. you know what was that like you keep trying <laughs> <laughs> It, well, it's humiliating. It's well, it's it. It just makes you know that you have to work harder. That I don't know. You just keep trying. You, you don't give up. I'm stubborn. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I'm stubborn. I'm like, I know I can do it. So I just kept going back to the gym. I remember just being back at the gym the next day, on the stair mill, 
doing cardio again mm -hmm. and weight training so I could look better and have a better presentation for the next round. And then once you reach that goal, then it's like, okay, now what? And then he went to triathlons. I, I started appreciating more of a overall, like an overall state of well-being. Uh, running focused a lot on your your lower extremities. Then you get knee injuries, and then with the bodybuilding, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I think the the bodybuilding competitions are more challenging mentally, mentally, because you always want to give in to foods. <laughs> um, you're tired sometimes from work you don't want to do the training mm -hmm. so it's a mental challenge a mental battle I think to stay motivated to stay on on point with your meals and your workouts and so I, I thought triathlons was better in that I incorporated swimming biking and running mm -hmm. I didn't overuse any specific body part and I could eat normal not be so strict with dieting and not obviously not overeat but I could be a normal person. I was trying mm -hmm. to go back to being a normal person, not mm -hmm. obsess over anything. Mm -hmm. Is that why you stopped doing the bikini competitions? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I did all that just to, like I said, help with battling depression, cope with being alone, cope with stressful times at work. You know, every time I had to give a briefing, running always lowered my anxiety. And it allowed me time to brief, practice the briefing while I was running. Mm -hmm. It always made you feel good. It always made me feel good. Yeah, so, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. I do miss it. I miss bike riding the most. Oh, but at least I got to experience it, I guess. So now when we do f fundraisers for me, one quote somebody wrote in a t-shirt was like, Uh, we fight because she fights and we do it because we can something like that she said but I guess seeing me out there in the wheelchair motivates them to do the CrossFit workouts that they do in their fundraisers or run even though they're not in shape or they may not be able to lift a lot of weights they work out and they get inspired to work out just because they can do it whereas I can't anymore what what can you tell me about the darkest moment of the darkest day in this whole process of recovery I know you've been recovering slowly and mm -hmm. are doing better like you don't have a breathing machine mm -hmm. I think that the darkest times are in the evening and sometimes when I don't have visitors PMS time is definitely oh interesting it hits me really hard mentally mm. I get very irritated or get really sad And in the evening, I think because I'm tired, I get frustrated easily that the nurses have to get me undressed or put me in bed and do catheters. I get frustrated because I can't do it myself. I can't undress myself. I get frustrated because I have to lay flat in a bed. Um, I can't just turn and or toss and turn to accommodate myself. I have to wait for somebody to come and turn me. Um, so all that frustrates me and makes me sad, makes me start crying, because I can't do these for myself anymore. When the sun is not out and it's gloomy like it has been these days, raining, I don't know, it affects me because I can't go outside. I have to mostly stay indoors. I don't want to get sick because I could get pneumonia easily, and a pneumonia can easily kill me. So I try to stay inside. 
if it's raining to avoid getting sick. Don't get much visitors when it's raining or cloudy out there. So it just makes it for like a sad day and don't want to do anything, which in turn makes me focus more on my state of being, which is just laying here in bed and not being able to go out and and shop or go visit friends or travel. I used to love traveling. Mm-hmm. PMS time is definitely the hardest time for me. Mm-hmm. I've I've been known to just sleep all weekend because I just don't want to deal with anybody. I don't want to deal with being paralyzed. And so I just, I sleep and I make up these fantasies of of how my life could be or I think of the past and what I used to do to to have fun, like dancing. I picture myself going back dancing and running, going back to the gym, weightlifting, traveling. I used to love traveling, traveling to new places. I just reimagine all those things in my mind to get by when I'm sad. Um, I sleep, sleep, waking up the next day. Usually I feel better. And so now that's how I cope. I either cry myself to sleep and I wake up, I feel better, or seeing something on TV, trying to distract my mind, distracting my mind helps if I feel like it, like watching TV. And um, I try to watch the shows on TV of like prisoners or other people that are in worse situations than mine that usually gives me some sort of perspective Mm. and then I don't feel as bad I know there's people out there that are in worse situations than mine that helps me cope through those dark days the love of my husband the love of friends of my pet um, those all help me to cope I still get a lot of wingmen a lot of friends from the base that come and and visit Mm. and it helps me a lot um, to know I'm not forgotten. Um, it's good to still hear about what goes on at work. makes me s- still feel like I'm included or mm-hmm. I'm still part of the team. Mm-hmm. And just having friends, the love of friends, the love of family really helps me get through. Um, having good caregivers. Being a caregiver is a gift. It's not something that just anybody can do. You have to care for other people. And I can tell... When I have a good caregiver and when somebody doesn't really want to be or they're just doing it for work. Mm -hmm. And it makes an impact on my well-being because I'm like, I don't want to be with somebody that doesn't want to be with Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be alone. Mm -hmm. And so it makes me sad as well because somebody's here taking care of me that doesn't really care. They're just Mm -hmm. going through the motions. How do you feel the accident has changed you? Or, Or maybe not the accident. How do you feel being quadriplegic and deprived of many of the abilities, particularly physical abilities that you had, changed changed you, maybe changed your values, or how you relate to yourself or to other people? Hmm. I think it's um, definitely made me appreciate more uh, friendships or family uh, after the accident. It hit me harder that really material things don't matter. We all go for nice cars and 
having a nice place to live and all those things. But when you're in your deathbed, when you're dying, none of that stuff matters. All that matters is the people that are there with you. Mm-hmm. Having the love of your family, your mom, your brothers, sisters. Having the love of your friends. Those are the people that you want to see when you're on your deathbed. And I was at that point. That gave me a 10% chance of living through that surgery. Mm-hmm. And I know it was my family and friends yelling at me when I was sedated, yelling at me to come back, that I had one more marathon to run. Mm-hmm. That had to have been what made me get through. So just appreciating people for who they are and loving more friends and and family, I think, appreciating them more, I think is what, what's changed. I used to change, I used to chase over goals, some material things. You want, you want the car of your dreams, you want a nice condo on an island or, you know, stuff like that. But I've grown to appreciate more friends and family. And now when you do feel like you're about to give up or... Mm. You feel, I just can't take another day, another hour. Yeah. What, what is that like for you? It's a um, excruciating pain, to be honest. It's mm. it's just like a knot in my chest. And I just cry. I, all I can do is cry. Mm. I just cry and cry. And I cry until I can't cry anymore. Um, my husband coming by to hug me or hold me. Help sometimes. Sleeping. Just forgetting about it. And then waking up the next day with a new perspective is is how I cope, to be honest. It's not much I can do. I can't go for a jog anymore. I just have to deal with it and feel out the emotions until it passes. I read on the internet this quote, uh, it breaks my heart not to be able to carry out a pregnancy. As Mother's Day approaches, I see the joy kids have brought to women's lives and I can't help but feel saddened for not being able to experience such a blessing. Yeah. Yes, I felt that way um, less than a year ago. Um, it's been difficult for me to have, to carry out a pregnancy Uh, because if I were to get pregnant, the baby would push up on a diaphragm, which would make it even um, harder for me to breathe. So it's life-threatening in that way. And also the baby would press on my bladder, making me have incontinence. Um, so it's a life-threatening situation for me to carry out a pregnancy. Uh, we tried to have a, a surrogate, or have a pregnancy through a surrogate, um, but that was unsuccessful. And it, um, so now I've just grown to accept the fact that pregnancy is just not in life for me. And that's something you had hoped to to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. Because I see kids as a source of purpose and joy, I think that's when us as humans feel unconditional love and probably feel the greatest joy that that we can feel as humans or the greatest purpose that we as humans can feel. And so I wanted to experience that, but it's just not in it for me to do that. So I have Chapo, my Yorkie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to suffice for now. <laughs> We treat him like a spoiled kid. 
Mm. He works. Mm. You've had him before? Um, we had him, we just got him actually last year, April. So he's going to be one year, one year old soon. Mm -hmm. He's brought a lot of joy. Yeah, yeah he helps a lot. <laughs> Can you tell me what does your day look like? Oof. Um, it's very exciting. I uh, wake up and um, I call for the caregiver to come and get me out of my side position. How, how do back. you call? Because you're not able to really call, right? Oh, I yell. Oh. I, yell. Mm -hmm. I yell as loud as I can and they come in and and sit me up and usually get coffee, watch a little bit of TV. And then I get on my phone and I use a stylus to go through my phone to check messages or emails. I stay pretty busy with the house project we were remodeling since we got a grant from the VA to adapt the house. Um, so it's accessible for me with my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed busy doing that and I stay busy with bills and the retiring process, the VA process. How are you able to read on your iPad? Because you're not able to move your hands. Uh -huh. So I use the stylus. It has like a, oh, a tip. And then oh, I, with my, I put the stylus in my mouth and with my mouth is how I have to like move the stylus. I scroll up or down or and I use Siri a lot mm -hmm. to uh, if I'm going to type a long message I use Siri and I dictate and then she types it up and mm -hmm. I send it off like that but I've been very productive I've actually done PowerPoint presentations wow. spreadsheets and word documents memorandums for the Air Force I've done all that on my phone wow yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then I usually sometimes go out for lunch with some friends Sometimes. That's, how how that's do a you go? Day. So somebody comes in and they bring a chair? Correct. So the caregiver comes, get me dressed. Um, we use a mo lift or like a Hoyer lift like that to get me mm -hmm. um, out of the bed and into the chair. And then from the chair, we roll over to my van, which has a, a lift on the back of it. It comes down. Picture like a C5 when it comes when the back of the C5 opens to mm -hmm. load cargo, mm -hmm. that's how my van opens up. And then I load in through the back with my wheelchair and we lock up in there like that. Mm -hmm. And the caregiver drives me to the grocery store or to to lunch or to um, pay bills, post office, etc. I usually come back home, eat, or we do another catheter. I have to do intermittent catheters every four hours. So one, I can't be so out one of too the caregivers long. will mm -hmm. do that? The caregiver will do that. And then I... Get, uh, I do a little bit of therapy here at home. I have a standing frame that helps me stand, puts me in a standing position. Uh, and that's good to put weight bearing on my bones mm -hmm. and uh, get some blood circulation going. And I also have a bike that I strap onto. We put electrical pads on my legs, gives electrical stimulation to my legs, and it moves along like pedaling on the bike. And it promotes circulation as well and helps with bone density. And just keeps my joints flexible so I don't get too stiff. When I spasm, I don't want to be too stiff. Then I usually watch TV in the evenings until it's time to sleep. Does your body feel any, like if I touch you, do you feel? No. no you have no, no sensation? No, I don't feel from my um, upper chest down. I don't feel anything. Um, and I can't move anything from my shoulders down. And then how do you eat? Oh, the caregiver has to feed me. Somebody has to feed me and 
give me something to drink. And if I have one piece of hair tickling my nose or poking my eye, somebody has to come move it. That's why I need a 24-7 care. Because um, especially when I'm sleeping, <clears throat> I'm prone to get bed sores. If I just lay in one position, mm-hmm. um, your body doesn't, the blood doesn't circulate. So then the tissue slowly starts to deteriorate because it's not, there's no blood flow to the tissue. Mm-hmm. And we get bed sores. So every, I'm supposed to turn, well, the nurses turn me every two hours from like this side to the other side. Mm-hmm. And we do intermittent catheters every four hours, all through the night, all through the day. Mm-hmm. So there's always someone with me to help with with everything, mm-hmm. with everything. That's why we need the donations to help offset the cost because it's expensive. And you have your own website, correct? Yes, mm-hmm. it's strongwithcat.com, and there's a link there to donate. And I could see the natural question for people to be like, well, where's your family? Why does my family help? My family consists of my mom, my brother, and sister. Sister um, has her own family in Illinois with two kids. My brother lives in Belize, and he has his family there, so he, he can't just drop everything he's doing. And my mom lives in Chicago um, and is just waiting two more years to retire from her job before she can even move down here. So I don't have like aunts or uncles or cousins or other family to come take care of me. And that's why we have to pay for mm-hmm. a caregiver to come in and help us. Mm-hmm. I have to keep going. I have to find a new purpose. And I'm looking into doing a, a foundation to where I can help not only veterans, but other disabled people that I know need equipment and need materials or need suggestions or resources I was thinking since I have exercise science bachelor's degree, I'm thinking to get either my master's or some certification in nutrition and provide nutritional advice to paras and quads. Because as we get older, since we can't exercise, mm-hmm. all the excess calories, they turn into fat and they mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of quads or paraplegics with big bellies because we just eat normal, like normal food and eat fast foods. Mm-hmm. But it's not good. Mm-hmm. So maybe provide some nutritional advice. I'm just coming up with a name. I have to find a name for this charity, and then I'll get it started. I'm a nonprofit organization, and so that's what I'm gonna do. That's what I'm looking forward to, to get going now. That's my future. Um, I have to stay busy. I've always yeah. been one of those people that yeah. has to stay busy. I have to I keep my mind busy. I can't imagine. Yeah, for somebody like you who is that driven to compete, to yeah. win, to do well at work, and be an officer in the Air Force. Yeah. I cannot imagine being locked in. No, it's just, it'll body. just keep depressing me. Yeah. I have to keep my mind active. Yeah. So I wish I could do more. I wish I could go help more. But I just, because I can't move my hands, it limits me to do, not to do so many things. Is there <sighs> a, any kind of um, advice, suggestion, words of wisdom that you have for? Service members who are struggling and not necessarily um, people who are limited in physical abilities, but anybody who is maybe struggling with tough times. Mental challenges mm-hmm. or family issues. Yeah. 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 But first off, yes, if you're able to move, no excuses. You have to get out there, take time to prepare for your fitness tests, stop parking in the front parking spot closest to the building. You can park <laughs> far away and walk. But yes, we all go. We all go through 
different challenges in life, whether it's a divorce, whether it's financial issues, family issues, um, death in a family, um, certain diseases. We all go through those challenges. And you have to find a coping strategy, whether it's exercising, whether it's reading, whether it's... Um, some people play video games. Some people just need to talk to a friend. I think talking to someone really helps get it out of your mind, out of your chest. If you can't talk to a friend, then we have, in the military, we have so many resources to talk to psychologists, and that helped me a lot along the way. Mm. Um, it's just talking to someone and seeing that they can understand and and provide some some feedback on what you can do as far as coping strategies or how better to deal with the situation, because every situation is different. So I guess you just have to really do some soul searching and just close your eyes, ask yourself, what is it that I enjoy doing? What is it that provides me relief or keeps me calm, whether it's walking, going out for a walk or, or jogging or talking to someone? Mm -hmm. What is it that that person copes better doing? Mm -hmm. And, and you're not saying this is easy. You're not saying oh, this no. is perfect. Yeah. And you're saying you're still struggling. Oh, yeah. But, but you keep, keep mm -hmm. moving. And if you're having a hard time, just go to sleep. <laughs> go to sleep, wake up the next day, and you'll feel a little better. But you have to keep trying to do something. Keep your mind occupied. Look for things that give you joy. A lot of us don't, I didn't know what gave me joy until I started doing the soul searching. And I spoke to a psychologist And she was like, well, you're going to have to start doing things that you enjoy doing. I was like, but I don't know what I enjoy doing. I don't. And a lot of people don't. And so I had to really figure it out. Like, okay, I do like just going by the beach and sun tanning. I do like listening to music. I do like going dancing, hanging out with friends. Um, so we need to identify that for ourselves and then do those things when we're down. And do it early on before we get so depressed that it becomes damaging. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. This was just a pleasure to interview you. And I, I really appreciate you being so real with me, too. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully, you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.